because I was hearing myself. I'm like, oh, there I am. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. coming through on Dennis's. I can see the wow. Wind. Okay, uh, let me try and. Jeez, Dennis, get your shit together. Let me try and change the because the output's going to the headset. You you have to forgive Dennis. He's the oldest, so he has to have those headphones cranked all the way up. <laughs> oh, no, sure. well sure. they were at a hundred percent. See, there you go. Yeah, Point proven. Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that refuses to suffer in silence. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And yeah, we are here, as we promised last episode, to talk about the Pariah Nexus campaign and narrative book. And uh, we're going to break that into two parts. Part one, we will talk about the story of what happens in Pariah Nexus. And then in part two, we will talk about the crusade rules for Pariah Nexus. Uh, but before we get into that, there is an announcement that uh, we do want to make regarding a narrative event, and that is the uh, Midwest Conquest narrative event. You want to take this one, uh, Kevin and Dennis? Yeah. So we just announced, we put it up on the website. Uh, we're going to be posting on social media, Facebook, things like that. But yeah, we we're running a short, uh, smaller narrative event at Midwest Conquest in parallel to the GT. Um, in years past, we ran a friendly event, but between going to the Grand Narrative, going to the LVO Narrative, other Crusade events, we decided that we wanted to try to take that route uh, this year. So uh, we're doing uh, Tales from Watchtower Phi Epsilon uh, because we were very, very clever and had to incorporate PE into it somewhere. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we're, we're, like I said, it's up to 16 people. We're going to play a variety of different sizes of games. You can start at 1,000 points, escalate up to 2,000, and then the final game will be a, a large multiplayer game uh, over the two days. So i uh, got a lot of really cool ideas, so we really hope that people uh, are interested in, and can attend. And if I remember right, you're also going to have like after hours on Saturday. If people want to get into it, there will be boarding action games that can help like move the narrative forward if anyone wants to play. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll have some, uh, yeah, we want to try to incorporate some other types of events into it as well. So boarding actions, uh, is one of the things that we're going to do, uh, Saturday night, probably around the same time as the night joust. Um, but, uh, if people want to participate, they can. Um, and that'll kind of like move the, move the narrative forward as well. And uh, Dennis, I know you're working on a few very special miniatures for the event. <laughs> yeah, just to add our own flavor to it, um, I'm going to work on some Death Watch preferred enemies, Phi Epsilon characters um, that you, if like, you might be able to recruit during the narrative, because have us come down and, and help you out, so to speak. I got to pick out my own head. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Me too. 
<laughs> they didn't they didn't have one that was just a piece of tape covering the face so <laughs> i mean dennis could still cover the face like make the model and then cover the face with tape i mean right kevin, kevin your yours is cl- very close because it's <laughs> I, like got a mask on the mouth and a ball cap on the head and goggles on the yeah exactly <laughs> yeah that you was, could be that anyone was, that was kind of what i was going for honestly <laughs> and also the well, baseball cap but you do wear a baseball cap a lot that you do. <laughs> but yeah, that is all up on the uh, Midwest uh, Conquest website, which is MidwestConquest.com. And remember, that is a Mother's Day weekend, not Memorial Day weekend yep. this year. It's Mother's Day weekend, May 10th through 12th. The uh, narrative games are on the 11th and 12th. Uh, it's uh, $65 uh, for the rest of the month, and then it goes up to $75 until the event itself. So, yeah, 16 spots available. So if you want to play at a custom-made narrative event made just by the Preferred Enemies crew, uh, please come check it out. We would love to see you there. And uh, and if that is not your jam, there's plenty of other events as well. We've got the Grand Tournament. Uh, there's an Age of Sigmar event, Bolt Action. There will be a Night Joust on Saturday night as well. If you uh, are not wanting to do boarding action, but you want to play with big stompy robots. And then there will also be a Beer Hammer on Friday night. So uh, check out the Midwest Conquest, uh, May 10th through 12th 2024 at the uh stony creek hotel and convention center in independence missouri and uh with that let's jump into the story of pariah nexus and this is the first campaign book for well i shouldn't say it's the first because they did release a standalone tyrannic war book Mm -hmm. for 10th edition although it was just a reprint of what was already in the Leviathan Core Rules book. Uh, this is the first one that is a standalone, not reprinted from something else narrative. And it's actually a continuation of a narrative that started in the Psychic, Psychic Awakening series, in the Psychic Awakening Pariah book, and then continued on through... Ninth edition into because we had the Warzone Nephilim Grand Tournament pack, and there was also a I believe there was a narrative pack for for that as well. Yes, it was Beyond the Veil was the narrative pack that covered the Pariah Nexus. So we had the ninth edition kind of Pariah Nexus campaign, which is retold briefly in this book. And it's kind of the lead-in to the story, so they kind of retell what what happened and then get into the main story. So let's dig into that narrative. So this all started out, like I said, back at the end of 8th edition going into ninth, with the discovery of happenings, or perhaps more importantly, a lack of happenings being reported in the Nephilim sector of, of space. And... This was odd because, like, right after the the Great Rift and the Indominus Crusades were launched, like, alerts were going up all over the galaxy calling for help. And there wasn't anything coming from this area of the galaxy. In fact, there was nothing coming from it. And so, uh, uh, 
basically Bobby G just, you know, decides, well, we need to send somebody to go investigate. So uh, he takes one of the battle groups from the Indominus Crusade fleets, battle group Calidus, and sends it them to investigate. And as they enter the sector, immediately things are obviously awry. Uh, noticeably, psychers, like the sanctioned psychers and librarians and such, feel stifled. Like they feel like they're they can't uh a f- con they can't like feel the warp as strongly. They can't use their powers and to the point where like it sends some of them into like a sense of panic, feeling almost like they're suffocating. Like they feel pressure against them. Uh, the ship's warp engines need more energy to actually function. Like travel through the warp itself is far more difficult than it should be entering the sector. The work, the the crews on the ships, even like the non-psychers, are starting to feel something is just off. Something is wrong, but they can't put their fingers on it. They just feel very uncomfortable. They translate back into real space, and they track down like imperial settlements and worlds that should have people there should have activity they're not getting nearly anything back when they send out astropathic messages and even those are proving to be very difficult but when they land and they investigate the settlements they're either abandoned like there's nobody there or there's some people there but they're just kind of like stumbling around glassy-eyed like no real sense of personality some of them like there's food around and they don't even eat like they can't even bring themselves to eat and so nobody's really sure what's going on but they start referring to it as the stilling because the crews that land the, the crews and forces that land on these planets are also feeling this like pressure of like it's like brain fog it's like it's hard to think, it's hard to to do anything. Like everything feels like it takes like it's twice as hard. And they start investigating and one thing they notice is that occasionally they're getting randomly attacked by necrons, which is unusual. Uh, is it now? I don't think the necrons do anything randomly. They don't, but for as from the Imperium's point of view, it's like they're getting like necrons are popping up and attacking them, and these aren't known tomb worlds. Like it's unclear, like why are the necrons attacking us? And so they do more uh, investigation. They're feeling and like even like space marines are are feeling foggy of mind. Uh, like guardsmen really suffering, uh, but the one group that is not affected are the Adeptus Sororitas and members of the Ecclesiarchy. For some reason, the Imperial Faith pushes back whatever this is. Do you know why, Rob? Why is that? It's because the Emperor protects. Indeed. (laughs) Most, you know, very literally in this case, which does raise an interesting question. It has been argued for a while that faith it like the the acts of faith and such that the the sisters carry out is some sort of weird warp phenomenon, but this would imply that it's not because this is actually working when all the warp stuff doesn't. Yeah, that's that's been kind of a large thing in in 40k with like collective belief having an impact on the warp and manifesting the chaos gods or chaos demons or you know 
orc's ability to make things work because they believe it does. That had always been explained as just a warp phenomenon, collective uh, belief, delusion, however you want to explain it. Uh, but this would, yeah, this seems to cut against that. So I'm interested to see how that thread plays out or if it does, because <laughs> 40k doesn't always, you know, doesn't always resolve their dangling plot threads. Right. Or at least not not resolve them for 20 years. <laughs> and one thing that they finally arrive at this planet called uh, Mesmok. And what they find on the planet is a giant blackstone pylon that they seems to be related to whatever is causing this stilling effect, this warp silence. And they tr- they're like, okay, well, obviously this thing needs to be destroyed. It's causing a problem. They try to bombard it. It's protected by quantum shielding. They try to attack it directly with ground forces, and it is strongly defended by the Necrons. And they start finding other pylons in the various systems, all slightly different, but all seemingly related. Some of them aren't even on planets. Some of them are just orbiting in space. And it's Lord Inquisitor Draxus, the uh, uh, Kyria Draxus. If you've seen the model, she's the one with the shaved head and got her little pet dragon lit on her arm. And, and uses an Eldar gun. Yeah, I was going to say, Kyria, yeah, from the, yeah, so a little bit of a Xenos radical. Uh, but, who, uh, who was released during the Pariah Nexus, uh, or not the, yeah, the 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 Warzone Pariah uh, thing in in Psychic Awakening. So right, nice so time. so yeah, so this is yeah tying back into that, and so she's investigating what's going on in the Nephilim sector, and they find out there's all these various like these pylons of Noctilith Blackstone that seem to be uh, affecting this, and so finally it takes. A fight involving uh, Ephrael Stern, the demi- the the demonifuge. So another sister's character that we're bringing in, and they go to the planet of Cherist, and there's a bunch of the Necron teleportation gates, and they manage to destroy those. And they're they they work by like they have a bunch of sisters of battle, and they seed them like inside other units to act as like these beacons of faith that actually help the like the guardsmen and the space marines function properly and so they're able to actually you know it's a it's a messy fight but they're actually able to destroy some of these teleportation gates and this shows yeah faith will work and even faith in the omnissiah helps to an extent although not as strongly as faith in the emperor but it turns out this is not just like an isolated thing we discover in the story that this is all something that has been architected by the Silent King himself. And it turns out there's not... This area becomes known as the Nephilim Sector, the Nephilim Anomaly, the Pariah Nexus. And it turns out there's not just one Pariah Nexus. There are Pariah Nexi or Nexuses, Nexies, spaced all around the galaxy because the Silent King has decided, you know... We could finally win this war in heaven thing, you know, that we stopped fighting 65 million years ago and save the galaxy if we just cut it off from the warp entirely. So I'm going to have my finest cryptex work on this and have them create these networks of Noctilith pylons similar to what was 
uh, you know, forming the Cadian Gate once upon a time, all around the galaxy to kind of act as a noose and strangle strangle the warp. And so, they're, like, they're doing things like moving planets and star systems around to set these up. And, uh, yeah, it's, like, ridiculous levels of technomagic from the Necrons. Which is kind of funny, because this is effectively what the Emperor was trying to do with the Webway Project. So Yes. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of funny that here it's presented like, oh, my God, the Necrons are doing this bad thing. It's like, is it? <laughs> is it, though? <laughs> it's only bad if you're not the one doing it, right? Right. I mean... They are they are moving planets around and killing billions and trillions of people and stuff like that. So sure, it's not like a good thing, but it is funny that this is effectively the same end goal that the emperor was trying to accomplish. <laughs> right. So the the forces of ba- battle group Calidus are like it this is a messy set of fighting and obviously the Necrons are very protective of this because the Silent King himself has ordered this. Although not all the Necron dynasties are necessarily on board because the Silent King has given up his ability to just automatically command everyone. So he has to now actually work diplomacy with the various dynasties, and a lot of them are on board, not all of them, and we'll get into that in particular in a bit. But the second battle group, battle group Orpheus, comes in as reinforcements, and... They're a- the forces together are able to they they continue fighting on this planet Cherist where Ephrael Stern had helped them like kind of secure a foothold, and they get a bunch of psychers together and are able to send out a call for help. It kills a lot of the psychers involved because they have to push really hard past this stilling effect, but they're able to send out a call for assistance. I mean that's just the life of a psyker in this in this yeah, universe. So. Very much, yeah. 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 <laughs> but this is this fight is not going well for them. Uh, you know, besides, like, there's only so many sisters to seed around. They can't be everywhere, uh, and even like the space marines, like they're they don't feel fear. They're not getting like glassy eyed, but it's like. There's a detached, like, there's a group of Black Templars who are starting to far, fall deeper and deeper into, like, just mindless zealotry. Um, like, so it's like they're even, they're yeah, losing that control. that would suck. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they're losing control. And, uh, and also the Necrons are just really nasty to fight against because, again, they have techno magic. But all is not well on the Necron side. Uh, for one thing, a lot of the Necron dynasties are either not going to work with the Silent King, or they will, but they're going to be busy doing their own things. Like, they're going to be busy pursuing their own agendas, and if it happens to work with what the Silent King wants, then sure. But they're just as likely to turn on each other out of just petty political squabbles. Meanwhile, Orokin the Diviner is also running around the Nephilim sector. He is allied with the the Silent King, although he's not with the Silent King in person. But he's been doing his normal chronomancy and looking ahead at the future to figure out what's going to happen. And he keeps seeing premonitions of some singular event coming down the pipe that could corrupt this whole system. Like the, not just the system of like the, 
like in the Nephilim sector, but like the entire system of like pylons and such. This is foreshadowing <laughs> because That's a singular fine. event. It's probably fine. Yeah, a singular event will happen, and it most likely will end up to leading things corrupting. We'll get there. <laughs> so, we have the remnants of battle groups Kalidus and Orpheus. They have sent a call for help. Raboot Gilliman receives the signal, and it's like, okay, this is obviously a big problem. Something needs to be done, and he's going to take charge personally eventually uh instead he's going to send another battle group directly from uh from indominus fleet primus so his primary fleet he is sending a battle group from them battle group hephaestus which is mostly controlled by the mechanicus and with them he sends belisarius call himself to lead that contingent and with the goal of Call will go to the sector, find out what's going on, and secure a very strong foothold. Then he will contact Gilliman. Gilliman himself will lead Fleet Primus into the Nexus to deal with the problem directly. Now, what Calls does is he decrees what's called the the decree or the the Noctilith decree, and this decree basically has two parts to it. First off, we're going to find the survivors of Calidus and Orpheus. We're going to reinforce them. You know, we like find the people who are currently fighting, reinforce them, make sure they survive. Cause that's our best chance of securing a foothold. The other thing is I want you all to collect, especially you and the Mechanicus. I want you all to collect and process as much Blackstone as you can find, because I have an idea to create devices called liminal abrasers, which will reverse the effects of the anomaly. Now, because the Mechanicus isn't supposed to have new ideas, he's real kind of like, oh, I don't know, I saw it somewhere, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but he, uh, <laughs> he's like very cagey about where he felt like everyone's like, I, I haven't found any records of anything like this. Like, no, sure, I, I swear I saw it. It's been a while. I don't know. It's It's there. Believe me. Trust me. <laughs> yeah like like none of like all the other tech priests are like we've never even heard of anybody suggesting something like this are you sure you aren't committing heresy you might be committing heresy and calls like i am absolutely not committing heresy i have no idea what you're talking about but that's you don't understand i'm in a leadership role i can't commit heresy <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> and uh not all the tech priests are on on board because some of them are like, no, this is straight up heresy. I am not. I am not working with Necron technology. This Blackstone stuff that all reeks of Necron stuff. That's not good old fashioned Imperium steampunk electronic heresy, you know, technology. So I'm not going to work with that. And then there's others who are just like, well, this is my opportunity to do all the crazy stuff that I wanted to do in the Imperium but can't because the Mechanicus are just a mess. Tech heresy? I think I will. <laughs> also, another system that is mentioned is the Zabrine system. Yes. Which is so a little throughout- bit se- separate from the anomaly. It's, it's part of the anomaly, but not one of the main ones that is focused on in this story. But they do mention it. Yeah, so it's mentioned a few times in, like, call-out boxes on the side. And, like, it's just an example of, like, the fighting that's going on in this area. There's a few different characters that are named. uh, Arthener Castigone III, uh, 
What was the other one here? Chaos Knight, Cran the Beast, uh, and as and a Corsair Warlord, uh, Illithlek the Starblade. I don't know. Eldar names are stupid. But the reason why that's interesting and neat that they're calling out, uh, even though I didn't particularly go to this event, this is the recap and this is the peppering in of the the, the events of the grand narrative in 2022. So uh, General Castagone and Cran the Beast and uh, Starblade are all like the the packed generals uh, from the event. So some of the events for like as you read through the callout boxes. Um, you know, the setup, how things go, you know, turn and then how things kind of wrap up was all determined by the players at the grand narrative, uh, which I think is very cool that they're, that they are following through with their plans to incorporate it into the larger story itself. Yeah. They said this was going to affect the, the narrative going forward and they are carrying that out, which is very cool to see. Yeah. Very cool. Which means we may see the things from Atlanta this past year reflected in next year's book maybe that's our thoughts that, that's the hope yeah <laughs> which and if you haven't read it there is a very good recap of everything that went down on warhammer community hey that's spoilers oh. <laughs> i mean well it's not I like mean, we did live, a three-hour podcast they were, about <laughs> yeah and they were live blogging it at the time I know. too so <laughs> But yeah, check out uh, Demons, Orbital Bombardments, and an Abominable Intelligence, The Untold Story of the Grand Narrative, uh, which was posted on February 8th. Uh, highly recommended read. And there's a full classified debrief that like kind of does it directly from a you know prose lore section, but then as far as like the, the recap of everything with photos of the event and such, that's also covered in that orbital that uh that full recap. So definitely check that out. And, uh, and then we'll get to see how that's reflected in next year's narrative book. It was really cool to see all the people in discord, like commenting on, yeah, Oh yeah. I remember when this happened or I remember those characters like that. So very cool to see the community engaged. So meanwhile, while all the mechanicus are not united on this plan to use Blackstone to make these liminal abrasers, not all the Necrons are united either, because Imhotek the Stormlord is basically giving the Silent King the big old finger, middle finger. Uh, and there's some interesting reasoning why. The Silent King it was the one who basically helped unite the Necrons to rise up against the Satan and you know fracture them and, and basically use them to power devices. And re strongly regrets the entire biotransference technology that was developed by Illuminor Zerus, by the way. He was the one who was behind the biotransference technology. Zerus is also directly involved with the Pariah Nexus, specifically the Nephilim one. And he's looking to eventually transfer everybody into just pure energy because that would be way cooler than these metal bodies. Whereas the Silent King was like, we would like to be living flesh again. We'd like to have souls again. It would be kind of nice to have souls. But first, we have to take care of everything else. Meanwhile, Imhotek is like, well, first off, I've been around doing stuff since, like, the Silent King split and left the galaxy and I've been here doing stuff, so honestly, I'm the one who should be in charge. Also, this robot body I have is pretty cool, and I don't want to give it up. 
So he's decided he's not really into this whole pariah nexus following orders thing. So he's going to uh, basically turn his forces on the Silent King's dynasties. Which Call notices, and it's like, well, there's obviously some sort of civil war happening on the Necron side. This is good for us because it takes some of the pressure off of us. Meanwhile, Inquisitor Draxus is, uh, pops back up in the story and, uh, basically appears on Call's ship as like, okay, I need help. I'm being hunted by death marks because Illuminor Zerus has it out for me because I've been messing with his plans. And is basically convinces, look, we need to destroy more, uh, like, we need to destroy some more of these pylons, like, because we, we just need to take one down. And so while the Silent King forces and Imatex forces are busy fighting each other, Draxus uses a strike force to basically infiltrate a pylon and destroy it from the inside. And she does manage to get away, and so... And I think at this point, two pylons have been destroyed. The Silent King is not down with this. He is quite upset. Because before, the humans were just being an annoyance. They would pop up. They would kind of mess around with some stuff. He would send some Necrons. They would fight the humans. Generally win because the humans were being affected by the stilling effect. They're vermin. We'll just deal with them when they, they pop up. Same way we deal with the uh, Vo- leagues of Voton. Same way we deal with the orcs. They pop up. They're an annoyance. You put you hammer them back down like a like a gopher game, and you're good. Now they're using the fact that we've got infighting to destroy my pylons. That's dishonorable. That's not war. That's a dishonorable action. Humans are to be exterminated in this sector. <laughs> and so he tells the cryptex, and the cryptex are like, oh, we can break out the good weapons. However, as I mentioned earlier, some of the admec uh, tech priests had been like, we've been waiting to use the things that we're not allowed to use in the Empire. <laughs> so they break out their big forbidden weapons. And Call had told them not to do this, and they did it anyway. And things go wildly out of control at this point. So, for example, there's a a void battle between Necron tomb ships and Imperial fleets. And one of the uh, Majos on board one of the ships decides, like, I'm just going to launch this torpedo called the Ark of Oblivion towards the Necron fleet, and basically this thing has, like, gives off an aura of disintegrate all metal. (laughs) Which is really effective against the Necron ships. And a lot of the landing ships for the Imperium forces, unfortunately. (laughs) Oh no, you found our one metal weakness. (laughs) (laughs) So, in response, some of the Cryptex start unleashing mind shackle scarabs to make Imperial forces fight themselves and start, and they unleash a Satan shard called Yashudra, which then inter, <laughs> yes, exactly, which then interacts with some weapon that, uh, Majo's breast of the, mani- uh, a manipulous prime is using. 
that she a weapon she has developed. We don't know exactly what that weapon is going to do, though, because what happens is the energy signature from the Satan shard interacts with the energy signature from this Mechanica super weapon and just ends up creating this orb of blue-white energy that expands until it consumes about a third of the planet and the space above it. And then just like pops and there's nothing in it. It's disintegrated everything, including the tech, ma- the, the tech majors. So I do love the way this section of the book is written because this is all under the, the third section of the book called fatal errors. <laughs> and then there's subheadings that are like arcana unleashed escalating insanity. And it's like, yeah, you guys are capturing the tone here perfectly. I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so this just leads to an increasing war of super weapons. Um, the Necrons start throwing dwarf stars at, at Imperial fleets, just entire stars. Um, they use gravity whips to just annihilate parts of fleets. They use ma- magnetic beams to crush mountains. Like, it's insane, the level of technology. And we've always known that the Necrons had that level of technology, because obviously they can relocate planets. They can uh, they can directly consume the energy of stars. You know, they're pulling, like, Starkiller-based stuff from, you know, Force Awakens. That level of technology. And meanwhile, since the... You know, the the Silent King, like, he basically, when he made his decree that the humans need to be exterminated, he had two choices. He's like, I can either turn all my attention to Imotech and the Sautech dynasty and eliminate them and then go deal with the humans. Or I can deal with the humans and then turn all my attention to Imotech. And because the, while he was offended by Imotech not following his orders, he was deeply offended by the dishonorable actions of the humans. And because they aren't Necrons, they are lesser than Necrons. He was extremely offended and decided to turn all his attention there. And Imotech uses this opportunity to peace out. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to stand back. I'm going to let you two duke this out because this is just fun to watch. And then I'll come in and deal with whoever's left. At one point, and I, like I mentioned some of the other weapons, in one battle, the Cryptex from the Nihilic Dynasty unleash 10 Satan shards at once. Like, it's the amount of destruction they are carrying out is really at levels we have not seen in, in, uh, in 40k. Like, we've seen like planet killers and things like that, but not on this scale. Like, this is, Far beyond anything we've seen so far. And finally, it all comes to a head. There is a, te- there is a, a Magos named Myrmidominus Gelf. And Gelf has a special thing that he's been saving for just this occasion. It is a swarm of microservitor weapon satellites that date back to the dark age of technology it predates the emperor being on the throne this is older than the horus heresy itself and he it is known as shivarik's constellation 
and he only can barely control it. He does not understand how it works, because why would he? He's in the Mechanicus. They don't understand things. They just use them. The weapons immediately go out of control and start attacking everything. But not only do they attack everything, they start forming, like, like energy glyphs and interacting in bizarre ways. They get fully corrupted. And at that moment... Energy readings go through the roof. Real space starts distorting and something comes through. Uh, and the process of doing this causes all the satellites in the Shavarx constellation to overload. Uh, Gelf's head explodes while trying Oops. to control them. <laughs> yes. And what should appear but everyone's favorite ruined Dark Angel planet, Wormwood, and Vashtor with it. Because it turns out, when you decide to use all the technology that you're not supposed to use to destroy everything, that empowers Vashtor strongly. <laughs> because that's kind of his jam. <laughs> and so, the planet Wormwood arrives, accompanied by a number of Chaos War fleets, uh, the various Chaos Space Marine war bands, fleets from the Dark Mechanicus, so they are making an appearance yet again. Uh, demons are being summoned in. Like, this basically shatters the control of the, the anomaly around the sector so that uh, it... Because, like, Vashtor, like, in his text section, like, he would have been, like, scoured away by the uh the power of this uh how how does it refer to a contra empiric matrix basically this you know anti-warp network but because of the damage that's been done he's able like he and the the other demons that are coming to him are able to survive and so now we have like belisarius calls like well that's gone badly and this was just around the time somebody had started actually, like somebody had gotten a liminal abrasor up and working. So his plan had been almost ready to work, and the other Mechanicus forces, because they were doing things that he had specifically commanded them not to do, have ruined everything. The Silent King is very disappointed, because this was supposed to work, and because this is now breaking, it's going to cause the entire chain of next pariah nexuses around the galaxy to not function properly and not do what they're supposed to do. And now Vashtor's here to just ruin everyone's day. And he he's also been looking for Oricon to like find, okay, so is this the thing? Is this like, was this supposed to happen? Because this is that corrupting event that Oricon had foreseen. And both sides are to blame because the Cryptex also were more than happy to unleash everything that they've been developing. They're just as bad as Admech Tech Majos. I mean, aren't they both like two sides of the same coin? They really are. They they really, really are. They're not that different from each other. And so, yeah, we basically end with a chaos incursion into the sector. And that that is where our narrative ends and where it picks up for the players to play through a uh, a uh, to play through a crusade campaign 
in the in the Nephilim anomaly and uh, possibly other pariah nexuses around the galaxy. I think that's one nice thing about how they've structured this narrative is you're not necessarily locked into just these forces. Like if you want to do one near Tau space and have Tau involved, you can do that. You can if you want to have one near where High Fleet Leviathan is punching through, you could have the uh, you could have Tyranids there. So it's like this is set up for everyone to be able to take part although it is definitely focused on the imperium the necrons and effectively chaos wanting to mess with everything but we'll get into that a bit more when we get to the campaign rules themselves but yeah that is that is the story and uh vashtor continues to be like the major player in this, like we saw this in last year's Arcs of Omen series when he was introduced, and now they're really establishing him as a major threat and pretty much unstoppable. Yeah. I mean, not a good day to be in that particular portion of the galaxy, though. Uh, so we will get to the Crusade rules in part two. Uh, but first, we're going to take a, uh, a break for uh, recognize our sponsors. And also, there's a special group of sponsors we want to mention, and that is all of you who support us on Patreon. Uh, at patreon.com slash preferred enemies, you can help support the show. And if you do, you get to join us on Discord. We have a the preferred frenemies Discord, where we would love to have you come join us. Uh, and it's basically, uh, we have one tier. It's a dollar a month. None of our content is locked behind a paywall. It is basically a tip jar to help support us and pay for our web hosting and our uh recording service and our microphones and you know whenever we need to replace those and occasionally help with travel costs to go to events as we are starting to do again um and we've got the uh i know you guys are going to be at the narrative in dallas uh coming up uh the week after midwest conquest and uh it's funny that last year it was like the week after Midwest Conquest in Kansas City, and this year it's mm-hmm. still the week after Midwest Conquest, even though we moved dates. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're also going to be at uh, the narrative, which is again going to be in Atlanta. The grand the grand narrative finale will be in Atlanta this year. Yep. I think Kevin and I are both headed to both of those, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm curious as to see what storyline is going to try and progress out of it. We'll probably get an inkling of it in Dallas because it's the first one. Yeah. But the big reveals and all the big stuff will be happening in Atlanta. Right. Related sorry, related to that, uh, we did get a message through Facebook, and it's just something I wanted to mention. I answered the question, but I've wanted to mention it for anybody that's going to any of the U.S. Open events. Uh, so specifically, the question that came in was asking about how like the team events worked, uh, specifically how like LVO did it since it was a team event. And I believe Tacoma this year is is the narrative is a team event as well. Um, so I was just asking like how aura impacts and stuff worked on your opponents and teammates, things like that. The way that the LVO did it, and again, LVO is not GW, so check directly with GW, but the way the LVO uh, team event worked was you didn't share auras or abilities with your teammate, but they didn't negatively impact you either. So you could get close to, say, a Death Guard player without uh, getting any of their pathogens, but you wouldn't benefit from any of their buffs. Um, so basically, you were two separate armies, but considered friendly from the perspective of you didn't get any of the negative impacts, but you didn't get any of you weren't considered the same army for buffs and things like that. So, uh, assuming that that is you know 
probably the same way that they'll rule it for the Tacoma or any other narrative doubles events. Um, I would also just check in the players pack. There's a contact info for um, uh, basically it's Zach, but the, whoever is running the, the open events uh, that, that they'll answer questions and they'll post further updates on the uh, player packs um, as we get closer to those, those open events this year. But yeah, if you want to like, if you want to have a more direct way to contact us and talk to us in real time, uh, or if you just want to help support the show, uh, if you know enough people put in a dollar, it adds up. It really helps out. It'll help possibly defray some of our travel costs to get these two down to Atlanta. So yeah, just go to patreon.com slash preferred enemies and uh, join us there. Also, Kevin, uh, there was something else you wanted to mention. Yeah. So obviously, uh, going to take it down for a moment. Obviously, we're a Kansas City podcast. Um, even though a couple of us don't live in Kansas City anymore, we're still part of the community. We always talk about using our war game powers for good. You know, the the events that we do, the charity raffles we do, Midwest Conquest, etc. Um, as I'm sure everybody listening to this knows, the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl last weekend. And then they had a parade on Wednesday. At the end of the parade, there was uh, a mass shooting event. Uh, and there were several people who were injured. Uh, one person was killed. Um, obviously, this is a terrible event. We're asking that you know anybody, rather than you know donating to our Patreon or helping us out with that, the Chiefs are running a fundraiser on their website with the United Way, Children's Mercy Hospital Kansas City, uh, which is childrensmercy.org, uh, has a donate bun- uh, button on their website for their emergency fund. They took care of a lot of the uh, children victims uh, of the event. Um, they're just in general a great children's hospital. They work a lot with Sporting Kansas City. Um, their sponsorship with the name and you know the stadium uh, and have worked the Victory Project and a lot of things for them as well. So they're a great organization as well. So I would ask that at this time, if anybody does have extra money that they have to donate, please look into donating to one of those um, or to like the direct GoFundMes for some of the victims that are out there. Because yeah, this is just a, it's a hard time for this for people that were directly involved. Um, so I ask that you, if you can try to support one of those organizations. Yeah. And especially considering that like half the victims were children and were being treated at children's mercy, like helping them out would go a long way to, cause I mean, that's, that's something that obviously nobody should have to deal with. And the people who are able to deal with it, I mean, it's, it's still hard hard work and they are providing such a, a key service, you know, not, not only in moments of crisis like this, but so yeah, especially in a situation like this where there were like a very scary situation too, where like kids were separated from their families because it was pure chaos down there to have people like that step in and help and help those families is, is huge. So yeah, if you can support them, it, it would mean a lot to us. Well, with that, <laughs> But it, you know, this is something. Let's let's not beat around the bush. Things like this happen, and it's when a community steps up to help out that we can grow, you know, heal and move beyond it. So it's important to acknowledge these things. So we're going to go ahead and take a break for our sponsor identification. When we come back, we'll d- dig into part two, which is our coverage of the Crusade rules in the Pariah Nexus book. See you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them. We paint them. We love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Care Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. 
They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the Battle Mats from Game Mat. They're professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a Game Mat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back, and that means it's time for part two, which is our look at the rules section of the Pariah Nexus Crusade rulebook. And this is actually a crusade rulebook, because unlike all of the narrative packet booklets, like the Beyond the Veil one we mentioned in part one, uh, unlike all of those, this actually includes the crusade rules in the book, like the entirety of the rules for crusade pretty much word for word from the the Leviathan Core rulebook, which is really nice to see. And didn't the Crusade rules that came out last year also do the same thing, had Crusade and Tyrannic War in it? Um, I haven't, I have not actually looked through the Tyrannic War book, so I don't have that one separately. Yeah. Same, because I had the Core rulebook that had it all included. Right, yeah. But I want to think it did. Well, and that one may very well have had... Uh, but it's like before that, in like ninth edition, none of the crusade books had the mm-hmm. crusade rules. You had to have your core book with you. They did have the other core rules included, which was nice, but it defeated the purpose because you still had to have the big rule book to actually have the crusade rules, which did have some of the battle honors and scars and things like that that you needed to have available. So this is the first one where. Apart from the core rules, which are available as a free PDF or available through the phone app, this has the crusade rules, so you could get by with just a digital device and this book. Now, one thing to note, there is an unlock code in the back of this book. It does not currently unlock anything. I know. I used it. (laughs) Yeah, it does not unlock anything, and somebody asked, like, GW, like, so... What does this unlock? And they said, well, it doesn't unlock anything yet. 
So there's a chance we could get some crusade rules reflected in a, an app, whether it's the official 40K app or a standalone crusade app down the road. We don't know. But My guess would be it would be a next year thing as they're trying to get everything else situated first and crusade seems to be their afterthought. Mm. Well, I should, and, but at the same time, maybe this will be something at Grand Narrative that they will announce. Hey, and now we have a Crusade app, guys. That would Which be fantastic. That would, yeah. I mean, it's probably so, a pipe dream on my part, but. <laughs> and no, the, the, I, I actually think they would do something like that. Here's the new Narrative Crusade app that you can use to track all of your Crusade stuff. It's also a $5 a month subscription in Paywalled. <laughs> no, no. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, you've got to already enter all those codes for the Crusade books. That'll be how they <laughs> you're paywalled I, you by to, that. You have to enter all of the all of the codes for the uh, the the 40k app, and it's still paywalled. That's true. You you only get full army build. Like you can build an army with the free version, but you can't. I really wish they would find a different pay. Yeah, or like ugh. yeah, or make the app free because yeah, this is yes. We don't want to re- I don't want to relitigate that again right now. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to point out I, I do want to point out I actually saw a video about this on, on YouTube, but at least for Kill Team, like you can download the rules for the Scout Squad and Blades of Cain that were in the Salvation Box set. So even if you didn't have the Salvation Box set, they didn't make you wait till later to get like an annual or something like that to get those rules. They did give them away for free. So there's a chance. <laughs> That's cross good. Fingers. Yeah. There's a chance those could be available, made available for free later. Now, granted, those are the only ones, all the rest of them you have to pay for, but, but yeah, the, all the crusade rules, the core crusade rules are here. And as far as I could tell, going page by page, it looked like all the content was, other than this one is Necron-themed rather than Tyranid-themed. Like, all the the rules for experience points and battle honors and scars and requisitions and all that was word for word the same. So you, you have all your Crusade rules in one book, and that is fantastic. That is a huge quality of life improvement over... Ninth edition. Now it can be debated whether power level versus points is uh, an issue. You know, is a quality of life improvement over ninth edition because points get changed a lot more often, and they even have to have make notes in like the Munitorum that's saying like, "Hey, if your if your Crusade force is no longer legal because of these points changes, here's what you do." I mean, I'll see if that affects me going into this because um, I've got a bunch of the Dallas people. We've got six of us that are going to start a crusade and I'm going to be doing Dark Angels. And we used to wait till the points came out so we could all readjust our list for the points. And when Dark Angels Codex actually drops, I'm expecting those points to maybe change. And so I might be affected by that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's there's a good <clears throat> chance you will. Cause, but fortunately, the basically the Munitorum Field Manual says, as a result of the points updates in this document, Crusade players may find the combined points values of all units currently on their order of battle now exceeds their current supply limit. If this is the case, you can increase your supply limit so it's equal to the combined points values of all units currently on your order of battle. Doing so does not 
require the use of any requisition or requisition points. So Woo-hoo, you basically zero a requisition already. Yeah, so that you get a free <laughs> bump in your supply <clears throat> limit. Um, I think that which, makes sense. Yeah, which if you don't know what we're talking about in Crusade, you start with in the in tenth edition, you start with a thousand point army. You ha- can have a thousand points of models in what's called your order of battle, which is every unit that you can pick from to build your crusade armies. Now, as the game goes on, you can increase that your supply limit so you can have more units than you can fit into a thousand point game. And then you pick and choose from those. But in this case, they're saying like, if the, if anytime we update the rules and now your army is illegal because you're over your supply limit, that's not your fault. Get a free upgrade. Yeah, like for my list, I had I built a thousand point army, but I was like, I want more Deathwing Terminator so I can swap out between the two, and so I've spent two of my requisition points to up it to fourteen hundred so I could squeeze them in there. But thankfully, I guess I've got like eighty points spare, so if I change up a little bit, I should be okay anyway. But yeah, this this will be interesting. It doesn't give you the requisition increase ability, like effect it doesn't increase your supply limit the way that spending a requisition point it would just be enough to make it legal so, so like, give you the, that 10 points <laughs> exactly so your supply limit would then be 10 10 rather than like 1200 i mean that's fair yeah yeah uh, that, that, that yeah, is a fair way to deal with it and since you don't have war gear costs to try to manipulate to to get on no oh anything, gosh yeah but that's another yeah, discussion it, we've talked into the ground <laughs> oh gosh yeah well and it. And in Crusade, like, that was one of the nice things about Crusade was that you took war gear and it didn't matter because you're playing power level. Um, to the point where, like, if you wanted to change, like, you actually have to spend requisition if you want to change a unit's loadout because it didn't change your points any. Now, I mean, that's still the same. Yeah, it is still the same. It's just, it, it's like you're doing it at a more granular level, but not really because it's not changing the points values of anything but mm-hmm. <laughs> and just in, in crusade as a unit participates in battles it will earn experience if it was in the battle and it then it gets an, an experience point if it for every third unit it's destroyed across multiple battles it gains a, an experience point and at the end of each battle you can pick a unit to get be marked for greatness it gets three xp and you want to get to 6, 16, 31, and 51 because that gets you upgrades for those units. And while the book does include a set of generic upgrades, whether they are modifications to weapons on a data sheet or uh, crusade relics that you can take that are tied to the particular campaign or uh, battle scars which are, hey, your unit died in the battle and you rolled badly <laughs> to see if it, how it did afterwards. You can either choose to basically have it lose a battle honor or gain a battle scar. And the battle scars do things like slow down your movement, uh, lower your leadership, lower your objective control, things like that. They're generally not too hard to avoid because you can spend requisition to get rid of those and you often earn requisition like just through the through the process of a campaign. 
But that's that's Crusade in a nutshell. You are starting with a force and building it up over time. The units gaining experience, getting new abilities, getting more powerful, and then fielding those fielding armies made from that subset of four or made of a subset of those forces in each battle. Getting into the Nephilim War campaign specifically, uh, this is when you get into mechanics that are a little bit more tailored to this particular kind of campaign. Uh, this There were, if you have the Leviathan co- uh, core book or if you had the Tyrannic War crusade book, you would have something similar, but it's going to be tied to that particular campaign and uses some slightly different mechanics and has different lists of upgrades and things like that. And in the books, they do say that these are meant to be separate campaigns from one another, that if you do want to play like in a tyrannic war campaign, you kind of just ignore this book. Or if you want to play in the um, Nephilim war campaign, you ignore the stuff in the Tyranid War, because each one is its own individual thing. But they said if you have a force in your overall narrative and you do a Tyrannic War campaign, you can then do a Prior Nexus campaign and you still can keep all the buffs you've earned from each campaign. It's just you've you've done one tour duty in each one by the end of doing two campaigns. Right. You can't mix and match in the middle of a campaign, but you can you can bring a force over to another campaign. Now... There's a side effect to that that does get mentioned in these rules uh, that if you come to a table with a force that has been through an earlier campaign and has a whole bunch of upgrades and is all buffed out, your opponent who may not have, you know, this may be their first crusade game, gets temporary bonuses because of the difference in how powerful your army is versus theirs. And if you've heard us talk about crusade events, I think even last episode we talked about this. You can get a, it, it can get huge really quick. Like you can end up with like some super units very quickly in Crusade. So you need to have that. And, and that was something they had in ninth edition. They've ported it over to 10th. Although in ninth edition, it was just, you get extra command points. In 10th, you actually get some special abilities that you can pick from. So it's a little, you can tailor it a little bit more. Also, they don't want to give out command points willy nilly in this edition. They want to kind of keep it limited. And I mean, one of the buffs you can choose is two command points. It is. It is. But like it depending on like the difference in crusade point value, like you could have ended up with like like four, five, oh, right. six extra command points, <laughs> depending on yeah. like, where you were. And, and like Rob was saying there, the crusade blessings, there are some similar ones between campaign books, but a lot of them are different. Mm-hmm. So just and they kind of tailor themselves to what's going to be going on in the campaign. And I think it included increased from nine total in Tyrannic War to now fourteen total. Yeah, there's in- definitely more available in in Nephilim War. And one of the big things about the Nephilim War, as you may have picked up on in our coverage of the narrative, is an emphasis on Blackstone, finding Blackstone uh, fragments, and then deciding what to do with them. So while playing through one of these campaigns. Like, you will gain Blackstone. It just, it is going to happen. Like, like you will gain Blackstone by winning battles. There are agendas that will help you gain Blackstone. 
Uh, there are upgrades that can help you gain more Blackstone than you would normally. Um, as you collect Blackstone, a, a tally of Blackstone fragments, you can then spend them on particular battle honors or relics or XP. Now, these are only for characters. And one thing you want to keep in mind is generally in Crusade, you aren't taking named characters as often. Now, we did mention in like the Dark Angels book, they had a little bit of special dispensation for like, hey, if you take Belial, you get Master of the Deathwing. Like you get that that Crusade ability. But generally, your named characters are not going to be eligible for any sort of upgrade. No relics, no battle honors, etc. So you're going to want to roll your own characters. And collecting Blackstone will give you another path to making those characters more powerful so for example when you gain a battle honor you can also like you might spend 10 uh blackstone fragments to give them single-minded seeker which if the bear is your warlord at the end of the battle you roll a d6 add two if you uh won the battle and on a d6 plus or on a six plus you get three more blackstone fragments so it's like you are working on generating more uh, which you can also spend uh, Blackstone fragments to gain XP for characters. Like you can just do like five bl- fragments for five to get XP. And as I said, when you get to like six, 16, 31, 51, you get upgrades also. So this, uh, this plays into how you improve your characters. Also, the campaign itself uses Blackstone as a tiebreaker, like whoever, whatever alliance has the most Blackstone fragments. So you will want to be collecting these because they will matter in a campaign. So one thing I'll note, like the Blackstone is the new unique thing for this campaign. And I think I like that more than in the previous one. The previous one was you could make your units either monster hunters or striding behemoths that could um, get buffs based on how many kills they got after you gave them that designation. And it was just, it feels like something else to track and it's a path system. And while this feels more like here's an immediate upgrade, the downside is in Tyrannic War, it's any unit while in, um, this one is just characters. So I guess for some, they might like having units get the buffs, but there are other ways to give them buffs. And I like having characters getting the unique things because, like you said, Rob, it encourages you to bring your own characters and have them create their own narrative. Mm -hmm. Also, a difference between the Tyrannic War and this book is because the Tyrannic War did kind of force a lot of your units onto those two particular tracks, Monster Hunters or Striding Behemoths, um, you didn't get as many battle trait options. So this one has like a monster and vehicle chart, which the other one I don't believe did. This one has a mounted units chart. So if you have bikers or Thunderwolf Cav, things like that, you Lord have uh, excluding characters. So your Lord ah. on Juggernaut cannot benefit. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> well, just use one of those. We just use one of those Juggernaut berserkers. Okay, uh, so this is our whole anti-corn thing. <laughs> you can't have nice things. That's just, you know how this. You works. just break them. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> but like, for example, uh, and you can select a battle trait, or you can roll for it. They like ev- the basically each chart has six. So, for example, if you've got a non-character infantry unit, 
And let's say you decide to, you know, let it ride and you roll a four. Then you get that unit gets upgraded with raiders. Each time a model in this unit makes an attack that targets a unit within range of an objective marker, reroll hit rolls of one. So you are good at clearing people off objectives. Or maybe you have a a vehicle and you rolled a three, you get tank hunter. Every time you target a monster vehicle with that unit, uh, you reroll wound rolls of one. But you can also you're also encouraged to select abilities that kind of fit the narrative. Like, what are you trying to tell with like what story are you telling with this unit? What are you trying to do with it? There are a set of crusade relics. As I mentioned, crusade relics are something that can be taken as an upgrade to a character, but they are all campaign specific. So uh, there's a list here at different levels based off of what rank your character is at. So, for example, any character can take a an artificer relic. You have to be, let's see, heroic or legendary. So you have to be 31 experience points to take a, an antiquity relic and 51 experience points to take a legendary relic. You're not going to see those last two all that often because that's I a mean, lot of XP. If you do like a six month or a year campaign where you're playing every couple weeks, you might, you'll probably get there. Yeah, but that if you're playing that, you are playing a truly legendary campaign and then it's warranted. <laughs> right. But if you're and- doing like a, a, like one of their examples in here is like, oh, do a two week campaign. It's like, yeah, you're not going to see legendary relics in a two week campaign unless you're playing a ton. Well, each campaign actually is pretty short. And then it, those characters you can keep on going, as we kind of said earlier. So after yeah. like three to five campaigns, they might become legendary and have a name known by so many tours of duty through these campaigns. Right, right. So it does, again, encourage you to play multiple crusade campaigns. Although that's always one of the interesting things, like the GW Crusade events, you have to come in with a fresh Crusade army. So you actually don't get to get one of the benefits of a Crusade army is taking it from one Crusade to the next. Right, but they want everyone on equal footing and also, yeah. Oh, yeah, I get, I, I totally understand why. I just do think it's kind of ironic that like, one of the big selling points of Crusade is you can take your character, like your army from a Crusade to Crusade and build up all these abilities – accepted an official GW one because we all want everyone to start on the same page. And I get it. I understand. And that's fair. But we also have the crusade bonuses rule for adjusting for that. So yeah, you can see either way. There's a whole list of missions specific to this book, just as there were missions specific to the tyrannic war, which was in the, uh, the Leviathan book. Um, we'll get into those missions at the end, uh, but it's they they play pretty much standard uh, game style that like that you would play like the Leviathan mission pack, although not quite as many randomized parts. You are just rolling up a mission, and then you will select agendas, and that is one of the things that really sets Crusade apart from like normal matched play. Because in match play, you have secondary objectives that are trying to score you points during the game in order to help you win agendas are things that you are trying to get your army to do to help you gain something usually experience, but it can also be Blackstone in this particular campaign. Yeah. And like I said, down here, we're starting up a campaign and I've explained agendas to everyone. Like, 
okay, think of them like the secondaries that we were doing that are like you draw each turn, except this time you pick them and they're going to give you bonuses, mostly, like you said, experience. And so that's how you can, I guess, power boost or level up your characters faster is if you get them the more experience based on doing the agendas that you're selecting, uh, you can get to these bonuses much faster. Right. So, for example, the agendas in here, and as you point out, like there's actually more in here than there were in the in the uh, Tyrannic War book, and there's not a lot of overlap. They're a different set of agendas. So, uh, for example, the very first agenda you can take is to the last. So, at the start of your battle, you select up to three units, and you want those units to survive. So, if a unit is not destroyed, it gets two extra XP. So, you could have th- three units get as much as two XP for not being destroyed. If they're not below half strength, they get an additional XP. And for each of those units that's not destroyed, you also get an extra Blackstone Fragment. So that's like a perfect example of an agenda for this campaign. It gets you extra XP for some units of your choice, and it will earn you additional Blackstone. And I think not all of these, but the majority of them do end up gaining you more Blackstone. I mean, how else are you going to fuel all those super weapons? That aren't in True. the Crusade need rules. All, need <laughs> all the Blackstone. Uh, there's also a trio of agendas related to strategic footing. We will get into that in a bit. Uh, that is something that is very individual mission specific. But that also works because agendas are selected by the mission. You don't just pick one. Like, this is the agenda for my army. Although you may take the same agenda over and over again. That is perfectly fine. And you will select two agendas. For, for your battle. Um, also, we mentioned uh, Crusade Blessings, which is something else. After you select your agendas, you select Crusade Blessings. And that is based off the difference in the number of Crusade Points. And Crusade Point is basically like, how many upgrades has this unit had that each, like, that's a Crusade Point. So let's say I have four units that have all hit, like, six XP. So they've all leveled up once. So they each have an upgrade. That's going to be four crusade points. Um, if I play a player who has like no crusade points or only one or two, the difference is very small. There's not going to be any blessings. However, if I have a un- an army that has like, let's say this is an army I brought to a previous crusade campaign and I bring into this one and I have like 15 and my opponent has two because this is maybe their second game, second or third game. Um, Suddenly, that's a difference of 13. They're going to get two blessings, which could be anything from, as Dennis mentioned, starting the battle with two extra CP or using the command reroll once per round for free. Or every unit that isn't isn't destroyed this battle gets an extra XP. Or maybe you just... uh, after the battle, you get an extra Blackstone Fragment, and if you won, you get an additional Blackstone Fragment. So it's like, you can pick up to four of these if the difference is huge. Like, if they have 20 more points than you, it's amazing <laughs> that they've, they've played that much, and that, you know, and that you're facing them. And it's going to be harder to win, because they're going to have very super-powered units. But hopefully this will give you the edge a little bit. There are also some faction-specific crusade blessings. One is for the Imperium, one is for Necrons, and one is for everyone else. And this will tie into 
how campaign play works in this because when you start a campaign, so like that's the individual missions, but when you start a campaign and they actually give you an idea of how to run a campaign, which I do appreciate that. Like this isn't just the um, here are the rules, but also like suggestion of, hey, you should probably have a campaign master who's helping track all this and kind of helping facilitate everything and making sure that, it, you know, people are getting paired up and playing games that the right number of games are scheduled out. So. Once somebody has stepped forward as a campaign master, then you gather up players and um, they said, like, you can just do like two players. You could do a two player campaign if you wanted to, or you could have like dozens of players like they would have at a narrative event. Um, they do say it works well with a small, smaller group of players. So I'll let so, you know how that goes when I've got my group of six here. I think honestly, I think six to 12 would probably be about the sweet spot. I think, especially with three alliances. So that's one thing. It's like when you have all the players, divvy them up into alliances. You do want to keep them roughly even. Um, obviously, if you have an odd number, that won't always be easy. But uh, although if the odd number is like 15 or 9, it would be fine. But uh, but basically, everyone is split into three one of three alliances. So there's the Seekers, which is those who want to harvest the Blackstone and use it to do stuff. And they said this is primarily going to be an Imperium force. Uh, there are the Protectors, those who wish to protect the Blackstone as it currently is. Those are primarily going to be Necrons. And then the Interlopers, who are just using the situation to advance whatever personal agenda they have. They suggest, like, Chaos Warbands, Eldari, Orc Raiders... Anybody who doesn't really want to follow either either of those particular those two particular goals, and keep in mind the like just because it says hey this is like the Imperium is best suited to the Seekers Alliance, you could absolutely have an Imperium interloper player. You could have a Necron Seeker who's like I'm a Cryptech who wants to take all this Blackstone because I have a super weapon that I want to build, or I don't think the Silent King is doing it right. I'm going to take the stuff and do something else with it. Oh, no, not a Necron Civil War. Oh, no, that never <laughs> happens. Oh, wait, that happens all the time, apparently. But, like, even when we were playing in the narrative in KC, and we were split into two groups, which was basically, what, a tech... Um, Oh, I can't remember the, the actual terms they use. but Defenders we and destroyers. I mean, yeah. that's high level what we were trying to do. Right. One of them was called Ravening Hordes, and I don't remember what the other one was. Uh, de- was oh, it Seekers Desperate of Ally- Enlightenment. Or no, no, not the not, not the Desperate one, the Allies. Narrative. Yeah, Desperate yeah, Allies. And- Desperate Allies. Yeah. So there were Imperium players on the, the non-Desperate. Like, there were plenty of Imperium players on the Desperate Allies. But there were also Imperium players on the other side as well, because they may not seek the same thing. They may be fighting for different reasons. So you're not tied to that. It's just kind of a general recommendation. And it also says like, hey, these are guidelines. If you don't like how this is split up, feel free to come up with a different set of alliances. 
If many of the players in the group have crusade forces associated with a single alliance, to make the alliances more evenly numbered, some of them may have to fight for a different alliance than what we recommended. You could always create some interesting narrative to explain why one side fights for another. So, like, they even say, like, you can split people. Like, if everybody wants to be a seeker, because this is like an Imperium, maybe like a whole bunch of people have Imperium armies, and there's like one Necron player, and he's like, I don't want to fight. I don't want to be the only one fighting everybody else it's like well okay so like i'm gonna move you two over to like this alliance so that we can kind of even things out and that will probably change based on your play groups but i i will give you the warning if you go to a one of the narratives um that gw puts on there are a lot more space marines slash imperium players than anyone else so i think kevin you attested to that in almost every game you have played a flavor of space marines and then uh, for their campaign, uh, they recommend that this particular campaign is broken into three phases. They recommend each phase be two weeks, and the total number of games played should be equal to the number of players. So, yeah, we're going to try something like that. We're not doing the two-week thing because we only play like once a month. But we're going to go through like a rotation of playing against each person once and then call that phase one. And then we'll play through each person again, call that phase two, and then each person again, phase three. And that's how we're going to separate the phases for ours. Right. And again, phases like these are suggestions. These are like what they recommend, but whatever works better for your group and your schedule. Then once the uh, you do the campaign phase, each time a battle is fought you uh, each alliance will accrue campaign points based off of who won or who lost and how big a battle it was so if you were playing thousand point games which you're going to be playing at the beginning of the campaign anyway those are going to be one point for losers two point for draws two points for wins uh, just because especially because draws are a lot more likely at a thousand points so it makes sense to like not penalize somebody, but you also don't want a, anyone to go with zero points. Like you want everybody to have some points at the end, you know, in the f- end of a phase. One thing is, and this is probably from their testing and whatnot. In Tyrannic War, you got three points for a win, two for a draw, one for a loss at the incursion level. So they did tone down wins at the incursion level. But the flip side is at Strike Force. You, in Tyrannic War, you got four. It went four for a win, three for a draw, one for a loss. And now Strike Force in um, Nephilim is three for a win, two for a draw, one for a loss. So it's kind of interesting how they played around with these points between campaigns as I guess they're learning some things. Or the like, different power levels, like you said, Rob, have different effects and you're more likely to get draws in the incursion than you do in Strike Force. I think so. And yeah, you don't want someone to lose purely because, well, we managed to draw games because it's just more likely. Whereas like one alliance got a win and win, you know, pulls ahead. And also like that three two one being moved to strike force level, I think does make the wins at strike force level a little less. It, it makes it harder for one alliance to pull ahead with like, like if one alliance has a really good week and they win like three games. Well, there's a big difference between earning nine points and earning 12 points. So that determines who wins a campaign phase. 
And then at the end of each campaign phase, you figure out based on which alliance won the campaign phase, then that determines how many strategic points you get. It's a little bit confusing. You've got two sets of points that you're trying to manage. The the winner of the campaign phase for phase one gets two strategic points. The runner-up gets one, and whoever came in third gets zero. Uh, and then three points for the winner and one point for the runner-up in phase two. And then phase three, it's everything's going to the winner, four points and nothing for the runner-up. So you want to win phase three more than anything else. And I'll toss out this as another interesting thing. In Tyrannic War, there is no runner-up score. You get one point for winning phase one, one or two points for winning phase two, and three points for winning phase three. So technically, even if you won phases one and two and had that three points, you still couldn't win overall because someone else, if they won phase three, would tie you in three points. So I think they changed that up here so then that way – I mean, two plus three gives you a really solid stranglehold unless someone got second place in and then one, one, four beat is six to five if it ha- happens that way. Right. So it's interesting how they, like I said before, they, they kind of are learning and changing how to have the scoring happen. Yes. Yeah. They're trying to find ways to make it a little bit more interesting, a little bit more of a horse race rather than just, uh, one side being more likely to just run away with things very quickly. Although one can, it can still happen. Um, but yeah, the, I can like, there's a couple of paths that I can see where like you could end up with a tie at the end of like after phase three, at which point that's when you add up the number of uh, Blackstone fragments between all the members of Alliance, whoever's collected the most Blackstone wins in the case of a tie. Now, in addition to this, alliances can buy upgrades for their entire alliance. You mean between the phases? Yes, between phases. Okay. So like, yeah. So like at you finish after you finish first phase, at the beginning of the second phase, you can select an upgrade that lasts for the next phase. Yes, I think this is super interesting. This was not in Tyrannic War, but what I also like about it is you start with whoever's in third. They get a pick first, and I think there's 10 total, mm-hmm. and all of them are unique and cannot be repeated in the entire campaign. So whatever whoever chooses first picks, no one else can pick for the phase two or phase three. So these, these you get a pick and choose smartly um but the fact that then each person or each alliance picks one and then start a phase three you get to do the same with the seven remaining ones i do find that interesting on how you can like give buffs to your entire alliance and it's a way to have the people who are behind kind of catch up a little bit by whatever advantages they can get from this right which could be anything like uh you get additional crusade blessings if your team's the underdog or if you're not the underdog, you could still get a crusade blessing or, or no, it's if you're not the underdog and your opponent would get crusade blessings, they get one less or it could be extra XP for characters or, or non-characters for infantry units. So like just I'm um, seven XP, which like that could be the a free level very quickly. There's- and there's one that gives you a strategic point, aka, hey, here's an overall campaign victory point for the entire thing. <laughs> right. Like, uh, puts you back in the running. So, yeah, this is 
like this is a really good way to keep the game, keep the campaign interesting, keep it a little bit more balanced so that it's less likely you're just going to have one runaway alliance. And that's good. That is, and it's, it's interesting the, the, the buying from the list and then nobody else can have it for the rest of the thing is, I really like that mechanic. Uh, and then one other thing that is specific to the missions here, and we, we mentioned it very briefly when we were talking about agendas, is a thing called strategic footings. Okay, this uh, is my favorite part of this book. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea being, the, the, the framing they give it is, because in the Nephilim in the Nephilim sector, and because of the stilling effect, and because most communications are done via astropath, communication is very rough between forces. So you don't exactly know what situation it, what the situation is going to be going into a battle. So it's up to you to decide how your army is going to approach the battle. So you choose going into a mission, you secretly choose one of three uh one of three strategic footings: aggressive, balanced, or defensive. Your opponent does the same thing and at the very beginning of the mission process, after the mission has been determined, you reveal what footing you've selected. And there's a chart that determines what effect that has. Rob, do you know what this reminds me of? What does this remind you of? Renegade Open, where you'd have oh? to pick what your thing is, and you both would have that little um, mission thing that you had in your hand. You both flipped them over at the same time. And I, I really liked that at Renegade Open. I like that concept here. I just wish we had poker chips to like do that with. <laughs> Which you could do. You could easily yes. make tokens for this. Yes. Uh, but the effects of the what this determine this will determine several things. First off, it determines who is the attacker and who is the defender for any given mission. And that will determine what deployment zone you use. And the deployment zones are not always the same. It's not like, well, you'll just be on opposite sides of the board. Maybe, but not always. Sometimes, uh, like, there's some missions where, like, the defender may be in the middle and one, cor and one corner and the attacker will be in all the other corners. Right, and this kind of goes along with all the narrative missions that I think we've seen and played the past couple of years, where they're not balanced, so to speak. The, sometimes the attacker or sometimes the defender would easily have an advantage based on the mission, and then on maybe the way train gets set up as well. Um, that could play a factor into it. But yeah, this is not like your normal uh, match play where everything is equal. Think things are not, and you just have to deal with it. <laughs> right. Um, so besides determining who is attacker and defender, this will also determine whether the attacker or defender gains advantage. And what that means is different from mission to mission, because different missions will have different benefits for the for like whoever has advantage. So for example, the very first mission they list, uh, Geists and the Static. If you have advantage... Then before the battle, you select one unit from your army until the end of the battle. That unit has infiltrators, but it can't begin uh, within range of an objective marker in no man's land. So you can place somebody on the board, but it's not near an objective. And the attacker in that mission has the first turn. So you don't roll off on that one. Some Most missions you do, but not all of them. Right. And I'm going to jump back to aggressive, balanced, and um, defensive because that does – 
kind of lend to your style of play. Like I'm expecting if Kevin were to come in here, he would probably pick aggressive with his corn almost every time because that's what they do. Because I mean, if both people pick aggressive, well, then you, you're going to have to do have a roll off for who go, who's the attacker and who goes first type thing. But if you're aggressive against balanced, the attacker is going to have that advantage because the other person's like, they're balanced, but they're not really attacking or defending. While if the attacker jumps into someone who picked defensive, well, the defender gets the advantage and, and whatnot there. So it's kind of a little mind game of what do you think the opponent's going to pick and what's to my best interest to pick? Cause it's almost like a rock, paper, scissors in a way. And then it if you both pick, is. and if you both pick the same, well, then you go to dice roll off, which is the normal way of playing. Also, one other thing, if you take the if both of you take aggressive or both of you take defensive while you roll off to see who is attacker defender, neither side gets advantage. You give up the advantage entirely. Whereas if you are both if you are both balanced, it's a roll off for both one player like the same player might get advantage. Different players might get advantage (laughs) versus, uh, you know, who is attacker defender. So if you but, like roll offs, pick balanced. Oh, right. But if you pick balanced, the more often than not, the attacker will have advantage. It just determines if you are balanced against defensive, you will be the attacker. If you are balanced against aggressive, they will be they will be the attacker and they'll have advantage. Um, there's only two cases where defensive has the advantage, and that is against aggressive. So, yeah, there's there's very much a gamble in here of, like, what do I think my opponent is likely to take? And, yeah, like, if I'm playing against Kevin or another corn player, I can probably bet they're going to go aggressive, which means I, I'm probably better off taking a defensive stance. I mean, truthfully, if Imperium was seeing a bunch of corn people running at them, I think they would take a defensive stance, too. <laughs> yeah. Although, although... There's also an argument to be made for going aggressive and saying nobody has an advantage. That's true. The the amount of like the computation in determining like what is the the optimal course of action here is is it's a very interesting puzzle to try to solve. Because while I I I don't think that the the corn player will ever pick defensive, uh I mean, would there be an argument for them picking balanced? Cuz yeah, against, I think so. Because because if if they if the opponent thinks that you're going to pick aggressive and they pick defensive, that would give them the advantage, right? Right. So if they pick balanced and the opponent picks defensive, then nobody gets advantage. Is that right? No, if, then balanced wins. Yeah, if balan- balanced, yeah, balanced beats defensive. Right. So there's that counter thought of like. Depending on what you think the opponent's going to pick, you know, a corn player might pick balanced. Right. To try and in that case, Rob's advantage would make them lose. So yeah, it all goes in a circle. Right. Yeah, true. I mean, I I, I also think that like you can make an argument that like a corn player might want to take defensive because in the example of somebody that's like, okay, well, you're going to play aggressive. I'm going to play aggressive to try to take away your advantage. If I pick defensive, you have to go first, and I gain an advantage. Like, uh, yeah, strategically that makes sense. So <laughs> I don't know. Like again, it, it's it's I like the paper rock scissors element, and and this is why I it reminds me so much of Renegade Open and their tokens where you're picking your your mission. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because there's all that extra thought that's going in at the start of the game that it's going to affect the entire game that you're just about to play. And yeah, advantage matters in every mission. Like, every mission has an advantage. Some of them are tied. Some of them are more generic benefits. Like, um, there's one where it's like, if you have the advantage, you can do an epic challenge for free. Okay, great. Yay. But then there's one <laughs> called, there's one called Amidst the Miasma. Everybody subtracts two from their advance rolls if they're in no man's land. But, if you have an advantage, you could select a, a unit that does not have that penalty. So it could make a big difference in how quickly you move through no man's land, which could make a big difference in scoring or getting into assault position. So like the advantage always does something. It may not be a huge effect, but it's always going to have a benefit in some way. Right, and the the downside I see here, though, is I really like the advantage part of this, but this is strictly to the Nephilim War missions. Yeah. You won't see them in Tyrannic War missions or other missions, so it is really locked in and limited to these. For now, I would love For to now, see this yes. come back. I think this oh, is something so that- would I. I think this is something that adds an ex- just an extra layer to Crusade play that makes things more interesting, so- I'm I'm all for that. As far as the missions themselves, one of the things I noticed about this compared to the missions you guys were playing at the uh, Grand Narrative, which I believe were all Tyrannic War missions, right? Tyrannic War seemed to have a number of missions that were all or nothing. Like, it's like you either are going to win by 90 or you're going to get nothing. And this does not have any missions like that. That was something I, I, I... paid close attention to is that everything is either progressive scoring during the game or is a combination of progressive and then an end game objective that is based off of something that you tally up rather than being like oh you know if this player succeeds at this they get 90 points no it's none of them are like that so you're more likely to have more much more even games and a couple of them also change the scoring based on who's attacker and who's defender. So again, that's that strategic footing can make a difference in how you score the game based on what role you get going into the mission. So, for example, there's one called Quantum Siege. The defender has a larger deployment zone. And then there are objectives, like at the beginning of the start of the battle... Each objective marker is considered to have its shield enabled. And then at the end of your movement phase, you can, if you control an objective, sorry, I thought not that you control, that you do not control, but that has one or more models from your crusade army within range of it, you can choose to enable or disable the quantum shield. And then at the end of the game, the attacker gets points for every shield that's disabled and the defender gets points for every shield that's enabled, the attacker gets slightly more points, but that's also because the defender is closer to most of the objectives. So, again, that attacker-defender thing will completely change how that mission plays out. Also, like, there's a mission that if the attacker wins, any unit that was within range of an objective gets extra XP. If the defender wins then the next time they add a brand new unit, that unit comes in at 6 XP and gets a free upgrade. But I really liked, like, overall, I like the blend of missions here. There's some interesting things with how objectives are used, some interesting deployment zones. The advantage mechanic is 
is kind of cool and how that interacts with the uh, attacker defender. I will say, Rob, my call-out mission would be nullification field. I think that's the last one that's not an like a 3,000-point mission. Right. Let's see. That's the one where um, you've got an objective that can move around, <laughs> but also no invulnerable saves in the middle of the field. Right. No invulnerable saves in the middle of the field, and you want to have that one objective in there because you're kind of trying to hold it. So it it's... Very interesting. Oh, and I, okay, I see. So if you have advantage in that mission, uh, you select... Okay, so you select one of... There are three objectives in the nullification field. You select one of them that's not the center, so either the left or the right one, and you move it six inches as long as it ends up not in the nullification field. So you get to move right. one away that you will have an invulnerable save at. Right. But still, I love having a force or an area there there where... Invulnerable saves? What's that? Um, I there's one that's interesting to me: the tortured worldscape. Yes, that one looks where, cool. That and that one is tied to the super weapons that are going off at the end of the the narrative, because basically the world itself is pulling apart. And at the start of each round, each unit within one of the open fissures, which are marked on the map, take uh, has to make a leadership test or take D three mortal wounds. And then it tells you which fissures are open at which time throughout the game. But once per battle, you pick, you select a fissure, and all units in your army have four up, feel no pain against those mortal wounds from that particular fissure. So the map is doing interesting things. You have to be careful how you maneuver around, but if you have advantage, you can almost just ignore one of those fissures. Not entirely, but it doesn't impact you nearly as much. Which is, and I all, think, they- and all objective markers are in fissures, so you yes. want to be on them anyway. <laughs> yeah, you you have to be on an, a fissure at some point, because also the fissures are three inches wide, so there's no control zone that isn't in the fissure, or they're six inches wide total. They're three inches from the objectives because the objectives are in the middle of them. So yeah. Also, you do get points for if enemy units are destroyed by fissures, which I think if you can maneuver, force an, op- an opponent to move onto a fissure and they are eaten up by it. So now it's just there's a, I think the missions here are a, they look like they're they're creative. There's some really like and some of them like you can tell they're based off of deployments from like the Leviathan pack. But at the same time, there's some really interesting things going on with objectives or how the map is being used or how scoring is working, but also that gives both players a real chance to possibly win the game without it being kind of like an obvious, oh, yeah, at the end of this, if I don't do this one thing, I automatically lose no matter what the rest of the board looks like. I don't I'm glad there are none of those missions here. So I think this is a good mission pack. I do too, and one thing this reminds me of is way back in the day where we can start dating ourselves a little bit, um, when supplement books were first coming out, and they had narrative missions in those supplement books, because Kevin, I remember you and I played the Tyranid Invasion of um, oh, Yandin. Yes. And that yeah. was a lot of fun because, and it, they weren't symmetrical. They did have weird deployments and had you do weird things, but it made the game interesting. And that's what I'm continuing to see in all of these crusade missions. And I'm loving it. Yeah, for sure. 
yeah, I'm just happy to see more stuff. Like I miss the old Battle Missions book. That was always that was always a fantastic source of missions, and so uh, this is about the closest thing we're getting to that anytime soon. Uh, are these Crusade books? I'm hoping we see more than one a year, though. I'd like at least two a year would be good. Like one to start off the season, and like start off in January, and then one in like July. Although that's going to be really close to whatever big release they have, so maybe not, but... I don't know how they'll work it, because I could see it being like a yearly thing, and it makes sense to me that way, especially if everything leads up to a grand narrative. True. Um, Or I could see it the six-month way, because Leviathan came out in the middle of last year. This came out in the beginning of this year. So I could see either one. Um, I would say for the amount... I play, I would prefer a year because that would give me actually time to kind of play through everything. And I, I like having the stability, especially in narrative of not having it change too frequently, which sometimes I know the competitive meta that changes every six months is pretty darn fast, but those players tend to play a lot more frequently than I do with just a couple times a month. True, true. But yeah, overall, I, I really, dig this this crusade book i'm i i want to see if anybody wants to start doing crusade in the area using this because i think just the the blackstone fragment mechanic is just it's a nice it's a pretty simple add-on to the crusade rules it's not terribly complex it's points that you have to spend to make your characters better um the the campaign system is is i think decently well done it keeps the it tries to keep the overall running between alliances relatively even um the strategic footing mechanic is really neat uh with like once you start like really wrapping your head around it and you can kind of get into the that how, how to gamble it out and and what your odds are to to get the outcome you want uh the missions are i think designed in in interesting ways and also i just love having the crusade rules in one book so i can just carry this around and the app and have all the rules available without having to lug around an extra big rule book and at most like once you have your codex this plus a codex is not a lot to carry now i i think i think they did a good job with brian nexus i'm very happy with it and i think the narrative is very interesting watching two massive empires just going all out against each other and causing way more problems than they're solving. <laughs> I mean, that's 40 K. So yeah, it's yeah. True. <laughs> no, that is, it is 40 K. It is the most 40 K of 40 K books. It's also nice to see, even though chaos like makes an appearance at the very end, it's nice to see it not just being, well, look, it's, it's uh, Abaddon versus the Imperium again. Well, don't worry. Vashtor is probably going to become the next big bad we have to do. Well, yeah, Vash- Vashtor is definitely being positioned to be the next big bad. Like, or he is, he is the big bad du jour. He keeps coming back. Although it is also weird to think that, yeah, because Arcs of Omen ended, what, seven, eight months ago? So we are almost into our first, like, it won't be long before the first year of, or the first year since Vashtor appeared comes up. When did Arcs of Omen Vashtor come out? It was released in March. So we are almost in, we are a year into Vashtor being a thing. 
So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where they they take him, but they're definitely positioning him to be the big threat to the Imperium right now. So, or big, really the big threat to everything. I was going to say, not just the Imperium, if the latest white dwarf is to be believed. Right. (laughs) So, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with this and I hope this can, this trend continues. I like, I hope whatever campaign book they do next follows in this one's footsteps and keep some of this because I think this, there's just some really good things going on in this book. And obviously like the next one wouldn't be Blackstone Fragments. That would be, they'll come up with some other mechanic, whether it's a, like a an in-game currency of sorts or some other sort of tally or, you know, some other mechanic. But I do hope they keep their strategic footing for sure, because that is something Ooh. that is independent of. We should you know, have it be bananas. Bananas? Yeah, because then we can ask the tally man to tally me bananas. Tally man is busy counting up plagues. He doesn't have time <laughs> to ca- count your bananas. <laughs> Oh my! <laughs> and I think with that joke, Dennis, you're, that's that's going to call it for the show. I think we're done. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't. Yes, I, I honestly don't I know if th- I want to come back for any. I was thinking more. <laughs> ha- having having the monkeys collect bananas. <laughs> well, it was good doing the show with you guys. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> all right. Well. Anyway, so that wraps up episode 295. Only five more until we hit 300. Oh, wow. Yeah, we're almost there. Um, Not sure what we'll be talking about next time, but until then, from all of us here, Preferred Enemies, I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. Good night, good gaming, and you'll go bananas for the new Pariah Nexus Crusade book. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.